Hello everyone, this is Kim C, host of the literary book podcast, The Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a show where I, a university fiction teacher, when I'm not up to my eyeballs in grading, analyze the underrated works from the master of fiction, Stephen King. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for being with me on this lovely October day where we will be discussing the next 90 skinny, skinny paperback pages from The Green Mile Part 4, The Bad Death of Edouard Delacroix. I have my hot cup of Lady Grey with almond milk, no sugar because I'm sweet enough, and I am ready, guys. I am ready to discuss this very good, very grim, yet so wonderful fourth installment. I am loving this story more and more and more, and what a treat it has been to look at this novel in the individual parts it was constructed in. And if you are new to the show or new to our Green Mile coverage and would like to partake in this soiree of ours from the beginning, please jump back a few episodes to part one of the Green Mile, The Two Dead Girls, and it is there where I outline my intention for all six episodes as well as what I feel makes The Green Mile one of the most original King releases. I also lay out my plans for how I am attempting to cover all six parts individually, so hopefully that could be a nice place to begin and see a roadmap of what's ahead. But dear friends, precious listeners, the more this book progresses, the more special it becomes. Truly, I... I am so perplexed because this is a grim story. It is full of sadness, but there's also so much beauty. Oh my gosh, guys, so much. So as I've mentioned before in previous episodes, I have seen the film The Green Mile, but I've never ever read the novel before. So this is my first maiden voyage reading the story. And it has been such a wonderful investigation to take my time with it and look at these sort of carefully orchestrated helpings we have. And what it's doing is just blowing my mind is the best way to put it. It's just absolutely romancing me the way great writing does, but it's even more than that because it's great king writing. And so I am just allowing myself to indulge in this beauty, this sadness, and overall observe with great gusto the tremendous execution of the craft. So if you are very new to our coverage, please, please, please jump back a little bit and get caught up. But if you're ready to go, if you are ready to trek further on down the Green Mile, just a heads up, I am going to be talking not exactly extensively, but I'm going to be doing a decent job of discussing certain plot points, character reveals, so tread carefully if you're in the middle of your reread and not exactly at the same spot that I am. So just a warning, spoilers are potentially abundant and they are lurking around every corner and I feel I may not do a good job of catching myself. I'm just going to blurt out all the things, so 
watch out, watch your step as we make our way through the forest behind the Georgia Pines Retirement Facility. All right, guys, so the outline of this episode is going to be similar to the previous three episodes. We're going to have a super mini recap, just itty bitty, teeny tiny, of the previous chapter, part three or not chapter, but the previous installment, we're also going to have a decent summary of what we learned in part four. And then in the next section, we will look at some of the brand new characters who have popped up in the story and who they are, what they're about, who they're involved with. After that, I'm going to isolate a favorite moment from the text for a sample of some beautiful, thought-provoking writing, and that will lead us into my rumination section, where I'm going to broaden a character, a topic, a chapter, a theme, some part of the story that is shouting a little bit louder and shining a little brighter, and it's just begging for some extra attention. And that is how we will end the coverage on part four, The Bad Death of Edouard de la Croix, or Edward de la Croix, potato, potato. So um, I'm fine with either, but I hope you guys are enjoying the coverage thus far. I am having an absolute blast. So let's continue on down the mile with a super quick revisit of what happened in part three of Coffee's Hands. So the bullet points I'm going to lay out for the following recap are number one, John Coffey, our second to newest inmate at the Green Mile. He healed our narrator, Paul Edgecombe's super bad urinary tract infection. Dear listeners, if you've read the story, you know this thing was bad. Oh my gosh this guy. Um, I believe it was probably a full-on bladder infection. He was in really bad shape, feverish, delirious, sweating, so much pain, screaming when he urinated. This guy was suffering, and he was physically touched by John Coffey and was instantly healed, letting the reader now know that Uh, John Coffey is someone very special. And so after this miraculous occurrence, Paul leaves the Cold Mountain Prison to do some outside research on John Coffey, but doesn't find much. And he doesn't really find anything that would lead him to believe that John was extraordinary in any way or not guilty. So number two, Wild Bill Wharton is our newest inmate at the Green Mile in the year of 1932, and he is indeed his namesake. He is wild. This guy is gross. He's crass. He's absolutely out of his mind and likes to play very cruel and messy tricks on the E-Block squad, and we got a good scare in. Um... One of my favorite scenes from part three is involving the human toilet bowl known as Percy Wetmore as well as uh, Wild Bill. There was a good scene where Percy was the one who got to feel victimized a little bit, which I'm all about. He is terrible. Um, But Wild Bill is quite the nuisance to the E-Block squad. Number three the precious Green Mile tourist, little mouse Mr. Jingles. He is the pet of Edouard de la Croix, was sadly, devastatingly, brutally killed by Percy Wetmore. 
right in front of Adwa, and that is how we end part three. Quite a devastating note. And now, dear ladies and gentlemen, here is what happened in part four, the bad death of Adwa de la Croix. So we begin this installment with our older Paul Edgecombe. So we've established from the previous three episodes that Paul, as he is writing the tale, is uh, a senior citizen. We don't exactly know his age, but he is reporting to the reader from a retirement facility called Georgia Pines. And at the beginning of part four, Paul goes on a walk. And I'm very happy to hear that Georgia Pines doesn't seem like it's a fenced in uh, prison of a place, as Paul's probably had enough of prison for, for four lifetimes. Uh, but it sounds like there's a good deal of forest behind the property. So Paul goes walking early in the morning before the residents and staff are awake and the reader does not know where he goes, nor do we know what he does, and Paul doesn't tell us. And unfortunately, we have a run-in with a staff member who we're going to talk about more in the next section. This guy is a jerk, um, and in my notes I have in parentheses, asshole, because he gives Paul a hard time. He's actually a little bit physical with Paul, which makes me really angry. More on him later, but like in part three, where we have older Paul watching the 1947 film Kiss of Death, the villain in that film is played by a creepy actor uh, named Richard Widmark, and this film and that performance reminded Paul of Wild Bill. And so with this physical encounter with this super jerk of a staff member, Paul is kind of forced into a memory of Percy Wetmore and what a terrible bully he is, what a menace, what an awful individual he is, and the reader gets to jump back to the past, jump back to 1932 with Paul, and plug right back in where we were left off on the Green Mile immediately after Percy killed Mr. Jingles. And it is a sigh with tremendous relief. Thankfully, mercifully, thank freaking heavens, immediately after the reader and the e-block squad are observing the broken, bloody remains of precious little Mr. Jingles, John asks Paul Edgecombe, or boss as he calls him, to give him over to him. And he says this right away. And um, this part begins with a very dead Mr. Jingles. Like he is lifeless, he is not moving. And Paul places him into the cupped hands of John Coffey. And I, I love this part so much. And John is pretty insistent and tells Paul, this is the direct quote, Give him to me while there is still time. And so, kind of like what we talked about last week regarding the hands of coffee, the physical touch of coffee, this is huge, dear friends, huge, huge, huge. Jump back to last week's episode for more details on that. But um, Mr. Jingles is in the very large hands of John, and he kind of makes a little ball with his hands, and all the reader can see, all the e-block squad can see is Mr. Jingles' lifeless tail sticking out. And then John kind of puts his mouth near the ball of his hands and sucks air out. 
and then John starts to cough and clear his throat and these black bugs, these flying noceums are coughed up and they disappear and miraculously Mr. Jingles is alive and thank god I'm so happy. Um, uh, so they quickly, you know, everybody's just trying to scramble with what they've seen and Mr. Jingles seems like he's 100% except there's a little bit of a limp when he chases after the spool, which is the game he plays with Edouard. He throws the spool and Mr. Jingles brings it back. So he's okay, but there's a little bit of a limp, which is precious and sad, And but he's no longer dead and that's the important thing. And in my reading, I don't, the pacing of the story right around this part is interesting because I don't think the E-Block squad gets to really take in the miracle for what it was. Um, only Paul does, I feel, because I think everybody was kind of busy and preoccupied with Percy being garbage, like how to deal with that. They were also preparing for Adwa's actual execution. Um, but uh, what was sweet and a wonderful detail is that Edouard gets to see that Mr. Jingles is alive, he's okay, uh, and we can observe it brought a great deal of comfort to him and to me. Uh, holy crap, guys, uh, animal death in King novels, oh my gosh. It just gets harder and harder for me the older I get, and I'm not sure why, but I mean, King kills a lot of people in his works. We know he does, and they're equally difficult, especially characters we love, but like, I don't know, man. Uh, for us animal people, it's challenging, but thank goodness King brought Mr. Jingles back. I was... Thank God. I'm really, really relieved and happy. But let's get back on track. So shortly after the miracle with Mr. Jingles, uh, we immediately start heading into uh, Edouard Delacroix's actual uh, death by electric chair. We are going to go over this in much greater detail in the next section because wowza, you guys, this scene was intense and there is a lot going on and we need to break it down in greater detail but Percy being our villain our resident scumbag our sniveling sadistic weasel I think the appropriate term I'm gonna use for what he does uh, during this execution what he does is bamboozle it and what I have here written in my notes is that he most assuredly, intentionally, I have this written in all caps, he botched the process. He absolutely botched it. And so he was in charge of securing the metal cap to Edouard's uh, head, as well as uh, implementing the element that would have allowed for the electricity to deliver the the jolt to deliver the power in the quickest, most humane way of brain death. But uh, our monstrous Percy Wetmore decided to bamboozle and botch the process, and he did not soak the sponge that's to be placed atop the cap of um, the individual. The water, of course, would have conducted the electricity right to the brain, and the person would have died as quickly as possible. But instead, without the wet sponge, Edouard 
horrifyingly was cooked alive from the inside, dear listeners. And this was graphic, folks. This poor man, granted his crimes were horrific, but this guy internally barbecued for all to see. He melted. He was smoking. Oh gosh, guys, this was a violent, horrific death. I I would not wish this on my worst enemy. Don't think so. Uh, according to the text, it seems like the horror shocks Percy, but I don't know if it did. Maybe. All I know is I hate this bastard, but uh, it definitely shocks and horrifies the observing audience as well as the E-Block squad. Uh, And the title of the installment is quite fitting. It is a bad death. It is a cruel death. And it's all because Edouard was someone Percy chose to put down so he could feel bigger, like a true bully. Uh, And this, uh, the specific lack of a soaked sponge, was because Edouard laughed at Percy. And this was his revenge. He laughed at Percy because Percy was getting victimized and needed a taste of his own medicine. And this was his revenge, was to ensure that this man died horrifically, painfully, brutally. It's sick. It's very sad. Once more, we're going to talk more about this chunk in greater depth in the next section. But moving forward, after the death of Edouard, the E-Block squad have a lot of paperwork to do because this was an absolute mess. This thing was completely effed up from start to finish. And uh, thankfully, they all kind of gang up on him. They almost allow Brutal to punch Percy to death, which I would have been all for. But the four of them kind of unanimously uh, pressure him to resign and transfer. Well, not resign, but transfer to Briar Ridge. Uh, which, based on the text, this place sounds like it's a mental institution in a different city, but they basically corner him and tell him, you better get the righteous F out of Dodge, buddy. You better leave Cold Mountain Prison, never darken its door again, or we will make life very hard for you. And I think Percy is in a moderately vulnerable spot after seeing the shock Potentially, I don't know. He could have got off to it. He's so disgusting. Um, so he agrees, thankfully. And uh, next, we have a phone call between Warden Hal Moores talking to Paul about Percy's transfer. And they begin talking about his wife, Melinda Moores, and how she's rapidly declining from her brain tumor. She is not herself. The warden is definitely starting to fray and crack at the seams from the stress, the pressure all the grief he's feeling and all that he has to observe and then Paul gathers the e-block squad to his home where his sweet wife Janice makes everyone lunch and Paul tells the squad which comprises our lovable cast of Brutal Howell, Harry Terwilliger, and Dean Stanton to basically 
recap what they know about John Coffey and to know that he is a very special individual who healed Mr. Jingles, he healed Paul, and what if they could get Coffey to the bedside of Melinda Moores? And this is how the installment ends with all four of them on the cusp of a plan because the majority of them, all except for Paul, have significant doubts or they really see it as a high risk, zero reward, but they are beginning to believe Paul uh, and Paul's claims that this coffee guy is very special and he could heal the warden's wife. And that's where part four ends and the sprinkles of the Green Mile part five night journey are looming ahead. And so if we were in the year 1996, we would be in June and need to wait about 30 days until our next release. But thankfully, it's 2021 and we don't have to wait. So Let's explore some of the greater aspects within Green Mile Part 4. Let's take a look as to why this, albeit sad and graphically violent installation, is actually a sparkling gem. I'll see you guys in the next section. Hello, dear ones, and welcome to the meat and potatoes portion of part four of The Green Mile, The Bad Death of Edouard Delacroix. Here is where we're going to shed some light on some of the areas of this installment that I liked quite a bit, as well as got me thinking. So let's kick it off with some new characters who have joined the story. We have three that I wanna talk about. The first one, is someone who I should have mentioned earlier, but I don't feel I did just because she was probably a little too quick on the page, or maybe I did and I just forgot I mentioned her. Either way, please forgive me. Uh, this character's name is Elaine Connolly, and she is older Paul Edgecombe's special friend. I believe that's a direct quote that Paul uses for her at the Georgia Pines Retirement Facility. She's a sweet lady. She seems very concerned with Paul's welfare. You could definitely tell they are buddies. She checks in on him. They spend time together. We don't really have a backstory as to what her life's about and her sort of circumstances, but they're definitely hanging out with each other at Georgia Pines. And in this installment, Elaine unfortunately gets to observe some terrible stuff that happens to Paul uh, by the hands of this next character who I'm going to talk about here in just a second. But Elaine's pretty sweet and we saw her a lot in the last section of part three when Paul's immensely shaken up having watched a clip or watched a good chunk of the 1947 film Kiss of Death in which this actor named Richard Widmark, please google his face if you haven't, it's quite menacing and frightening. 
reminds him of Wild Bill Wharton and it's very visceral and intense and Paul was really shaken up and Elaine was there to comfort him. So I really like her this far. She's sweet. I hope we get to learn more about her. She definitely seems like she's in older Paul's corner. So I hope that she is someone that he confides in about stuff. Uh, that's what I'm hoping for. She seems like a trustworthy soul, so I'm liking Elaine. Number two, uh, the terrible Brad Dolan, in parentheses I have, asshole, written in my notes. So Brad Dolan is a staff worker at um, Georgia Pines, and he has decided uh, seemingly out of the blue, uh, unless Paul, I don't remember if Paul says he's had run-ins with him before, or maybe he's just a monster to all of the residents at Georgia Pines, but Brad sort of uh, accosts Paul out of the blue when he's on his way back from his morning forest walk, his little sojourn. We don't know where he went, we don't know what he did, but he borrowed a rain jacket or some sort of staff jacket to go walking in and Brad Dolan has decided to give him a hard time about it and go a step further and grab Paul's wrist in a very aggressive violent way and kind of like intimidate him be cruel to him and kind of say answer my questions I'm the law around here, so to speak, and this, of course, sends Paul deep into the grip of memory, and he thinks of Percy Wetmore, but I don't, I think Percy was too big of a coward to ever, um, grab anybody, because he's just a little pansy like that, but this Brad Dolan guy, I mean, you're trash. If you are going to manhandle elderly people ever, like, kill yourself before we kill you. Like, I hate, I, this Brad Dolan person, he's not on the page very long, but he made me instantly enraged, um, and he kind of reminds me, if you guys remember from 2014's Doctor Sleep, when, uh, the character of Danny Torrance is taking, he's got a position at the Helen Rivington house, God, I botched that so many times in that episode, but uh, it's either Helen Rivington or I completely forgot it, but uh, that's a care facility and there was a staff member who was uh, leaving bruises on patients' arms and Danny Torrance has to get in their face about it. It was pretty great. Um, that reminds me of this, but Brad Dolan, what a jerk. I really hope we don't run into him again, but knowing King and his villains, we might. So I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for the trash bag known as Brad Dolan, who is intimidating and being physically violent and cruel to the residents of Georgia Pines, specifically Paul Edgecombe. And I don't know if it's an isolate. It sounds like it was an isolated incident. Based on the reading, it seemed like Paul had never been physically touched by Brad before, but it seems like they may have had previous run-ins and Paul just kind of dis evades as quickly as possible and just kind of not exactly cowers, but he understands that in his elderly state, he's not in a position to combat anybody verbally or physically. So he's doing his best to kind of sneak out of it and wiggle away as efficiently as possible, but 
this is terrible and it's a hard scene to stomach because just imagine vulnerable elderly people in that circumstance it's heartbreaking so brad dolan can die i hope he dies soon because how dare you how dare you um harm elderly people like that like i that makes me murderous with rage so uh number two brad dolan and that leads us into number three uh this character is a stand-in i think the direct quote is a stand-in for warden hal moores and that's curtis anderson so this is back in 1932 cold mountain prison this is during the execution of edouard uh hal i believe is on a leave of absence to take care of melinda it's uns it's unknown to the reader how long he's going to be away or if it's just a one-off or he's like I don't really want to do any executing right now my wife is dying so uh Curtis Anderson is the stand-in and I don't know if he's like a regular he, he's a bit of a mysterious character but he does have a good scene with the block squad after Edouard is fully dead and the stench of burning flesh and hair and all of the horrific imagery that went down Curtis is like exploding at the e-block squad saying that there's vomit all over the floor I'm never gonna unsmell that smell it's gonna take weeks to get it out like what the hell happened so I really like that scene how Curtis is kind of the voice of all of us and kind of exploding in like what is going on because he had no clue and uh, thankfully our block squad immediately throws Percy under the bus rightfully so so Curtis Anderson is a stand-in for Warden Hal Moores so he might pop up again we shall see I don't know but he's somebody who joined this story and during the execution scene so we'll see what happens so for this installment we had the lovely sweet Elaine Connolly I'm really glad she and elderly Paul are special friends how cute is that number two the um, piece of trash Brad Dolan and then number three Curtis Anderson so I do have a chunk of text I would like to read to you guys this is a little bit of an extended scene I'm gonna do my my best to do a southern accent but it might sound like garbage so <laughs> please if you are from the south I ask for your forgiveness straight away immediately please forgive me um but yeah uh if you're if you're uh from anywhere else uh thank you for throwing me a bone the southern accents there are so many types I know that they all sound similar but they are not uh, the the ones from Texas are a little shorter and and higher pitched and clipped and then the further south you go the longer drawn out they are and we don't know where in the south we are right I think it's North Carolina but it could be other places ergo uh, forgive me straight away I'm gonna try to do the accents here it might sound like garbage hot garbage but um we'll we'll give it the old college try so if you have the 1996 signet paperback go ahead and shuffle on over to page 84 this is a bit more of an extended scene but i could not i just had to do this whole thing it's magical and beautiful and powerful and let's take a look at it this is starting on page 84 of the signet paperback She's the sweetest woman you could ever hope to meet, I said, and she means the world to him. But we don't know her the way you and Janice do, Brutal said. Do we, Paul? 
You'd like her if you did, I said, and you'd like her if you'd met her before this thing got its claws into her. She does a lot of community things. She's a good friend and she's religious. More than that, she's funny. Used to be, anyway. She could tell you things and make you laugh until your tears rolled down your cheeks. But none of those things are the reason I want to help save her, if she can be saved. What's happening to her is an offense, goddammit, an offense to the eyes and the ears and the heart. Very noble, but I doubt like hell if that's what put this bee in your bonnet, Brutal said. I think it's what happened to Dale. You want to balance it off somehow. And he was right. Of course he was. I knew Melinda Moores better than the others did, but maybe not, in the end, well enough to ask them to risk their jobs for her, and possibly their freedom as well. Or my own job and freedom, for that matter. I had two children, and the last thing on God's earth that I wanted my wife to have to do was to write them the news that their father was going on trial for, well, what would it be? I don't know for sure. Aiding and abetting an escape attempt seemed the most likely. But the death of Edouard Delacroix had been the ugliest, foulest thing I had ever seen in my life. Not just working life, but my whole entire life. And I had been a party to it. We had all been a party to it because we allowed Percy Wetmore to stay even after we knew he was horribly unfit to work in a place like E-Block. We had played the game. Even Warden Moores had been a party to it. His nuts are going to cook whether Wetmore is on the team or not, he had said, and maybe that was well enough considering what the little Frenchman had done. But in the end, Percy had done a lot more than cook Dell's nuts. He had blown the little man's eyeballs right out of their sockets and set his damned face on fire. And why? Because Dell was a murderer half a dozen times over? No. Because Percy had wet his pants and the little Cajun had had the temerity to laugh at him. We'd been of we'd been part of a monstrous act, and Percy was going to get away with it. Off to Briar Ridge he would go, happy as a clam at high tide, and there he would have a whole asylum filled with lunatics to practice his cruelties upon. There was nothing we could do about that, but perhaps it was not too late to wash some of the muck off of our own hands. In my church they call it atonement instead of balancing, I said, but I guess it comes to the same thing. Do you really think coffee could save her? Dean asked in a soft, odd voice. Just what? Suck the brain tumor out of her head? Like it was a, a peach pit? I think he could. It's not for sure, of course, but after what he did to me and to Mr. Jingles. That mouse was seriously busted up all right, Brutal said. But would he do it? Harry mused. Would he? If he can, he will, I said. Why? Coffee doesn't even know her. Because it's what he does. It's what God made him for. All right. Hopefully that didn't make anybody crack up too much with laughter. Uh, but we're, we're trying to, for an immersive experience. So I loved that scene though, guys. It's starting to hint and sink into everybody that coffee is something else and I'm loving that they are seeing the miraculous and they're they're wrapping their minds around this concept that this inmate scheduled to be electrocuted to death 
is healing people and bringing things back from the dead. And that is huge, 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 huge. So that was the scene I really enjoyed reading about. Uh, forgive my accent. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe we'll see if that went down okay. If not, I promise I'll never do it again if it didn't work out. Okay, so now the main piece de resistance I want to talk with everybody about is, of course, uh, in big bold letters, all caps, the execution of Edouard de la Croix. This thing is meaty, dear friends. Um, no comparisons intended, gross, but this is a very, very, very layered scene, and oh my gosh, the gothic nature. That's what I'm titling this section, the gothic nature of Edouard de la Croix's execution. Okay, if you are a gothic uh, a gothic fan of any kind, um, gothic novels, gothic writers, it has all the things, dear friends. This is really where King is plugging in some old school horror. So I want to talk about some of the elements in there that are screaming to be discussed. So the first one, and this was so cool, is that the execution is taking place in the month of October, which is where we at. I absolutely love, love, love when that happens. It feels very, very synchronous and magical, mystical. Feels like I'm supposed to be reading this book at this time in my life. That's how it feels, but that's a little bit of my own personal woo-woo, uh, witchy woo over there let's not read too much into it, but synchronicities are cool to observe. So we are in the month of October and it is hot. It is a hot month wherever we're at. It's not cool um, yet. Uh, of course, Paul, a few pages later, immediately says that post Edouard de la Croix's death, the temperature dropped and it went complete 180 and changed to more of an autumnal temperature. But for the night of Edouard's death, it is hot, it is sticky, I don't know if it's humid, we don't get details on that, but I'm assuming, I'm assuming we're in the south, assume humidity, maybe. Stifling inside the Cold Mountain Penitentiary, and then in that um, little little room where they're doing this, that's where we um, have the heat radiating all over, everybody's sweaty, really uncomfortable. We also have thunder and rain, a lot of lightning as well. So as we know from cinema, anytime we have cinema on, or pardon me, anytime we have rain on screen, it indicates that everything's about to change. We have that in spades here, dear folks. There's a quote from Paul that the rain started to hit the roof so hard, um, it sounded like rocks. Uh, I might be getting that wrong, but it was some sort of heavy object. Like we just start to get pelted with hard, hard raindrops that could have been hail. The thunder is roaring and rolling to the point where it's causing the lights to flicker a little bit. Uh, and of course, we are at, I don't think this is exactly the witching hour. The witching hour is 3 a.m., but we're of a witching hour. We are at the stroke of midnight, so that is when the execution is taking place very, very late in the evening. So we are at midnight. So the other thing that is very freakishly horrific about all of this and very gothic of course it's quite literally you know this this poor man even though he is guilty Edouard is very much like a man headed to the gallows um and 
King sort of really gives a strong indication of what he feels. And unfortunately, unlike what we kind of heard about with the execution of the native guy Arlen Bitterbuck in part two, that one was peaceful, it went smooth, and he was a little trepidatious at first. He was a little nervous, Arlen Bitterbuck, but unfortunately, poor Edouard, when he's being when he's walking down into the room, it sounds like there's a little bit of a staircase involved, he sees Percy and it fills him with dread and terror and he stiffens up, he shakes his head, he starts to kind of moan and mutter and this is devastating because Edouard really starts to lose all kinds of composure. So we have terror. The the man headed to the gallows or Edouard headed to the chair is filled with terror. And this is quite heartbreaking because the person that he could not tolerate, the person who really hurt him and frightened him, uh, is Percy. And there he is, the last face that he's going to see before he dies. This is awful, you guys. This is so grim. So I feel terrible for Edouard because he's already freaking out. He already did his final prayers with a priest who prayed with him in Cajun and, you know, he's he's about to just walk into the, uh, the arms of death here, but it's not going to be a gentle embrace and yet he sees Percy. So he's filled with terror. He uh, gets sort of situated and um, then when the actual electricity starts to flow through his body, we do hear that Edouard starts to scream. And this is awful. This is so awful, friends, because um, the a black bag is put over his face, which is interesting because typically in other media, we see the executioner have a black bag, but this time it is the actual um, person being executed. So he has a black bag over his face and then the cap, um, which did not have the soak sponge, ergo, um, oh, precious Edouard, just, um, you know, it's difficult. It's so difficult because Edouard is, all of these inmates are complex characters because the reader knows what they were convicted of. We know these heinous crimes that he committed, but yet all we have in our observation is this is, you know, a meek, mild man who is immensely kind to little gentle creatures. And he's kind of fun-loving and sweet and, you know, just some little guy who did some terrible things, but of course all we have are these really sunny things to color this character. So we're seeing this person who is very likable thus far in the story. He's a very likable character. He's someone we pity. He's someone that we wish we could protect as the reader from Percy because he's a lot smaller. And Percy's already quite small. I think he's like in the 5'4 to 5'5 five, five range. He's small in stature, a huge Napoleon complex, of course. Um, but Edouard's even smaller and really petite. This is a petite guy who uh, is being beaten by Percy with a police baton mercilessly and who takes comfort in this little mouse who Percy kills. Like this, He's, he's a, definitely a tragic character who we pity quite a bit. And in these final moments, uh, King kind of allows him to be roasted alive and scream. And 
as horrifying as it is, I'm hoping that it does scare Percy. I hope he has nightmares until he, every day of his life until he dies. Like, I really hope that he suffers for this terrible crime that he commits against Edouard, but who knows, because he's a little sociopath, which is what I kind of explored in part two a little bit. I am um, really disliking Percy, and I think he is um, one who is a pure sadist and is loving when others feel pain, especially pain that he uh, deals them. So the gothic nature of this execution is just incredible, dear friends. And I think the horrifying imagery, I was a little bit heads or tails on this because I think if King would have pulled back a little bit from some of the graphic details, such as um, Edouard's skull starting to smoke and his literal eyeballs resting on his cheeks, which is like, whoa! Um, it works, of course, but this was King definitely putting on the horror hat, putting on the macabre, and he, he went there with graphic details, and I think the worst one, um, if I, yeah, I think this is the worst one for me, is after when they were putting a stethoscope to listen if, I think it was a stethoscope, I hope I didn't interpolate that, I might have, um, they were checking to see if Edouard had a heartbeat, and Paul ends up, like, brushing his chest a little bit, and the skin, like, slides right across, like, just melts off of him like candle wax, which is, like, <laughs> um, quite horrifying, but I wonder, I wonder if I, I'm, I, my, my thoughts are, is that if King would have backed off of the horrifying details just a skosh, we might have maintained the not going into genre fiction a little bit to where King may have kept some skeptical, uh, bratty literary readers out there, <laughs> you know, um, I always kind of examine those moments where King goes whole hog with horrifying details, with channeling the horror genre, and just giving us all the gore, and I'm wondering if he would have just dialed it down a little bit, um, to kind of keep anybody who would have wrote off the horror genre nature, however... I think it works fine. I think it works fine because this installment was, its title is The Bad Death of Edouard Delacroix. It works. It absolutely works because this was a horrific way to die. This man died suffering in all caps. Like he was tortured to death and death was a blessing to this man because he went out with such pain and torment due to the maniacal schemings of the horrific Percy Wetmore, who I wish I could stone to death the same way I want to kill Big Jim Runny from under the dome, who I hate, who's my number one hated king villain up until this point at least. But uh, so the gothic elements of 
this scene. If you guys want to revisit it, please observe. I might be missing a few, but the ones that I super love to recap, we have a hot October night. We have the thundering rain. We have cracking thunder. We have lightning. We don't have any windows, so it's it's we can't really observe the lightning flashes, but um, we also have the observing audience. This is very much like in old school, the way public executions were done for hundreds of years where other, everyone gathering in the town square as a warning, you know, this is what happens when you break the law, this is what happens when you go against societal, societal mores and norms, like this is how you pay the price and, and this is this is punishment, you know, and people loved them. They cheered. They loved the dismembering. It was disgusting. That's another subject uh, entirely, but we also have the stroke of midnight is when the execution takes place. So lots of uh, gothic notes attributed to that death at midnight. Um, the, the midnight uh, essence, the witching hour, if you will, a kind of witching hour. I think there are two, although I think the 3 a.m. one is much worse and much more powerful, much more sacrilegious as well. Um, and then, of course, the fact that Edouard is afraid and he is being led to his death as a man consumed by fear and dread and terror and that's what makes this whole thing quite frightening dear folks my goodness this is just a this is as old school horror as you could get i think like we've got all of the elements working together the thundering rain creating such an ominous this whole thing is that's the word it's so ominous the doom that is coming toward adwa the cruel hand of fate as we often discuss in other episodes on the podcast this is just the the cruel um menacing outcome of this very tragic character Edouard de la Croix because the reader only got to observe him as a kind sweet man who was slight and petite and kind to Mr. Jingles and kind to other inmates as well kind to the e-block squad you know he wasn't didn't cause trouble um, he was uh, guilty of horrific crimes, including rape and arson, murder, all the huge rap sheet. But um, the complexity of that is that nobody deserved to die the way he did. But if you are a gothic literature fan, I would highly recommend revisiting this very ominous scene, observing all the elements that King is playing with. It's just classic. It's classic from the gothic literature guidebook with the um, the ambiance, the environment, the spooky month of October that we're visiting, the, the weather, the hour of night, and the fact that our victim is in pure terror and he has the source of his fear as the person who's disseminating the death. So it's incredible. And then we also have, of course, a body body horror, lots of body horror, uh, extreme body horror. <laughs> I can't emphasize that enough, dear folks. This is gross. We have all of the senses involved. We have, except taste. I don't think that we, thank God. Although we do have mention of many of the observers vomiting and but we don't really have description of anything tasting anything, but we have the scent of burning hair, burning flesh, burning 
charred organs. Um, we, we have all five senses for the most part involved in this horrific, horrific, horrific death. It is a bad death. Oh my goodness, dear folks. And this is definitely a catalyst for potentially more doom or something else. We don't know. Um, I just want Percy to suffer. That's what I want. It definitely solidifies Percy as a sinister villain. Super disgusting. I hope he suffers. Um, but I, I'm very curious as to what the next two parts are going to reveal about Percy because I'm unsure if he was shocked by it. I mean, he looked shocked based on what we have in the text. It, he looked like he was freaking out. He also was kind of stammering and clamoring outside um, when the E-Block squad confronted him. was like, what the hell did you do? What's wrong with you? You disgusting monster. He, you know, he plays ignorance. He plays like, I didn't know the sponge was dry, which is a lie. We know he's lying, but I, I don't know if he's faking it. I don't know if this is a game and he's just pulling the wool over everyone's eyes by trying to play dumb and trying to play scared or horrified, but the actions of him immediately submitting transfer papers due to peer pressure, like, I don't know. So I'm trying to categorize the, the scale of depravity that Percy is situated on. And right now I'm at a little bit of a crossroads because a part of me is one, yeah, I, if he is really, really shocked by it, or if this is just going to, if he like secretly loved it and he wants more and he, um, this will further his, uh, criminal explorations and just like, Paul said in the quote I read, he's headed to Briar Ridge where lots of, of um, mental institution residents are going to suffer from him and his evil little machinations. So we're just like, I don't know. So I'm a little curious as to what else we find out about Percy in the upcoming two parts. I hope he dies a very kingly death, nice and early and shocking, um, because he's trash and he's committed a terrible crime, a huge injustice, and Edouard should have never died like that. It was terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, but this whole scene, dear friends, is gothic. So many amazing gothic elements being utilized to make this scene a success. Aside from the actual execution and the bamboozled botch nature of it, we have a lot of gothic elements making this scene incredibly strong. So even though it was gross, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I liked what all that happened leading up to it. All of the all of the elements combined to make a terrible situation a very um, a horrific reading experience, but also just the whole, uh, everything about Edouard being strapped to the chair and the reader knows something's wrong. We don't trust Percy. We know that something's, we know, we know from the title of this installment, something is going to be awful. So it just is kind of the, the foreshadowing at play is tremendous. So I really, really liked it, even though it's grotesque. Uh, I really enjoy what King was doing to make this a well-rounded horror scene. So that is going to conclude my thoughts for um, the main meat of the exploration within 
uh, part four, The Bad Death. We explored The Bad Death, and that's gonna pretty much conclude what I wanted to talk about with everybody regarding this part four. So let's uh, mosey on out of here, get some fresh air after the uh, yikes, 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 yuckiness of Edouard de la Croix's death. Rest in peace, sweet little guy. I, ugh, it's terrible. Um, so I'm really looking forward to part five next week. Uh, night's journey so I'm really really looking forward to see what goes down with that I'm loving this story dear friends in case you couldn't observe already I'm loving it I'm loving it I'm loving it so much so uh, this is huge this is um, I, I know it's just gonna get more explosive and better so uh, if you guys are enjoying the coverage so far, uh, please let me know. Write into the show at underratedsk at gmail. Let me know your thoughts about the Green Mile. Um, if you are very new to the podcast and just making your way, hopscotching around a few episodes, I would love to hear from you if you could write into the show at underratedsk at gmail. And if you haven't already, please visit Apple Podcasts and give me a five star so I can try to scoop up some more King fans or brand new King readers for this Halloween season. We are in the month of spooky, so I'm hoping to meet some new friends. That would be amazing if you could lead them my way and give me a five star. And if you would like to say something nice about the show, I would so appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. It's like a little log on my campfire. I'm able to burn a little brighter and keep making my way through King and recording my thoughts. So I love and appreciate all of you so much. I'm having a great time. I'm having a great time with this really sad story but I'm loving it the writing is beautiful and I'm really enjoying all the things so I'll see you next week for part five of the Green Mile Night's Journey take care and bye-bye